after kilometer 120, you have the chance to, to stop for a pee and get rid of your jacket. And then at kilometer 182, second chance to get your, your fresh bid in and then be race ready. All the other rest, all the other kilometers, you need to be in front anyway because it's carnage. Hey legends and welcome back to the Press Room Podcast presented by Zwift, our title sponsor where fun is fast. Episode 4, we're back, we're back and we've got two episodes coming this week. We've got Marco Haller uh, from Borahun's Grower today and we've also got Julian Vermont also on the way as well, a little sneaky episode with uh, the workhorse Julian. But today's episode is Marco Haller, really, really interesting app and I'll get to that in a second but I want to tell you the story. At the moment, I'm in ISO, so seven days isolation. So <laughs> thank the Lord, I've got my Ergo set up. I've got the Zwift cranking. And yesterday, I went and did the Uber pretzel, which is the hardest route on Zwift. It's 130 k's and 2,500 meters elevation, but it finishes on the Alp, which is like 11 k's at 10%. And <laughs> it was brutal. I was feeling good. Until I, I was like, oh yeah, about 110k's in, I'm like, righto, about to hit the Alp, and geez, I fell apart big time. I reckon it took me about an hour and a half to get up there, and I was melting. But it was such a good challenge, and I unlocked the S-Works 7 shoes. So stoked. I used to have those great, great shoes. Anyway, um, so it's just a great little challenge, and... And one thing I really loved about that ride was about 90Ks, about the 90K mark, you go back through the desert, the Fugo Flats. And, you know, the desert's not the most exciting course in the world, but, you know, it was about 10Ks. I wasn't really looking forward to it. I was just like, just put your head down and ching across. And next thing I know, I come across this guy who was doing about the same pace as I was. And we started taking turns. And then a third person joined in and we started chopping off. And next thing you know, it was full country handicap style. We were just chopping off and the pace was ramping up. And I was like, geez, boys, I've done 90Ks here. I'm, you know, <laughs> but you know what it's like. You just get stuck in. And anyway, it got me through that section and across to the Alp in no time. So that's just the beauty of uh, Oswift. It's just so engaging. But anyway, you can uh, try the seven-day uh, free trial. It's in the description below. You really would be silly not to try. Just download it, stick it on your phone or your iPad, and you're ready to go. Okay, well, that's enough about Zwift, our title sponsor, absolute champions, but we're getting into episode four. Marco Haller. He's from Austria. He rides for Borahans Grower. He's just moved teams from Bahrain, Victorious. And you would have seen him last year, prominent in the classics. He's usually around the top 10, and he is the bodyguard of the leaders. He's a very, very talented rider and very good in the classics. And he helped Sonic Umbrelli to that huge, epic Paris-Roubaix win. And in fact, I saw on his Instagram the other day, um, he got sent a watch from Sonny. Uh, a really, it looked like a real expensive, it wasn't your Casio calculator watch, it was a nice bling-ass watch. And uh, obviously, a big thanks, uh, Sonny, to Marco for his, for his help in getting him that victory. But in today's episode, we talk about everything. We talk about preparation uh, at the start of the season. He'd just come off a team camp uh, earlier in the year. And, and what that's like. We talk about changing teams and the differences between Bahrain, Katusha, and Borahans Grower. And we also talk about the bikes. You know I love getting stuck into the bikes and what's different. Um, we hear about classics riding and, um, you know, you just listen to Marco. He's got a really, really um, 
well, it's just a nice accent, the Austrian accent, isn't it? It's beautiful. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. Get on the Ergos, get on the Zwift. It's time for episode four, guys, and I'll see you soon. Mr. Marco, how are you going this morning? Just woke up, just made a coffee, feeling fresh. Yeah, uh, a good day. Uh, a good day here in Vienna. It's a bit uh, like uh, cloudy and misty here, so I already missed uh, the sunny side uh, of uh, Mallorca, where I was the last month. But uh, it's good to be home, recharge batteries, and uh, yeah, enjoying uh, every minute. Mm. What's that um, painting behind you? you got- ah, that was a, a, a birthday present for my 30th uh, uh, birthday. Oh. So there is a an, uh, an, an Austrian artist, I hope that's the correct term in English, uh, and uh, he he helped me out on, of making me a, a pop-up portrait of myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. I like it. That's really cool. Um, all right. Well, Marco, just to um, start, give us uh, give our listeners a rundown for how long you've been a pro cyclist, um, who you're uh, current riding for, who you were riding for last year, and then maybe give us your favourite race. Well, uh, every time people ask me that, I start to feel really old because uh, apparently I'm starting into my 11th season as a professional. So that's uh, already quite some time in the world tour. And um, before that, two years on continental level. So uh, um, already uh, quite a few years in the business. Mm. And uh, yeah, currently riding for Team Bora Hansgrohe, just uh, recently uh change teams um feeling very happy very uh comfy in the setup here and uh, quite a few changes uh, that went through the roster and also i'd say through the uh yeah new jersey and uh thankfully still with specialized bikes and everything <laughs> no, really really enjoying this uh kind of new era now for myself at least and uh, yeah, you're asking about favorite um, uh, favorite races. So uh, speaking to Aussie now, I need to say Baycrits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. We just had it. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> good memories. Yeah. And uh, but probably it's Perry Roubaix. Uh, or or Flanders, uh, San Remo. These are certainly the the big uh, one day races, the monuments. They uh, they are there for for ages. I followed them for, um, since many, or I followed them since many years, and now privileged to to ride them and compete in them myself. So uh, that uh, remains uh, one of the biggest days in the in the calendar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've yeah, touched on those, all those points you just mentioned. I've got them lined up. Um, but what I want to touch on first is um, <laughs> Baycrits. That's so gold. I, we just had the Baycrits. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah it, was, it was very exciting despite not having, um, you know, some of the international presence uh, like yourself and, and um, some of the other riders that came and raced it in previous years. It was still uh, a banger. So, um, yeah. Definitely. Um, what I wanted to start on though is, you know, 11 years professional, but you went to the World Tour 2012 with Katusha. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. 
Yeah. So how did you get there? Like, were you racing a continental team in Austria? Like, what's the, what was the sort of pathway for you to the world tour? Well, um, to, to start the, even a little bit before that, you can say that my uh, uh, time uh, being a, a junior rider was uh, quite successful as I finished uh, third in the world championship in Moscow in, uh, what was that? Was it 2009 then, I think, probably? So, um, probably yeah, it should be 2009. Yes. And uh, I actually straight away signed a contract with a, a professional continental team in Austria, Back then, that was uh, Team Elk House. But uh, in December, they informed me that the team is not going to happen as the sponsor pulled out uh, midwinter. And uh, that made it a, a little bit of a difficult uh, period. Uh, not at all a crisis, but for me, it was always a little bit like, yeah, it, it doesn't really need to be professional cycling. It can also be... Uh, uh, going to the university and doing a, a normal job but uh, um, anyway I was still in school so I hang on for another year and uh, then I thought yeah okay now I'm what was it 90 years old so I better give it one more try and and, and, and do cycling properly and see where it where it will get me and uh, I uh, changed after a year in, in Austrian in a small Austrian continental team I changed to a Slovenian continental team as the setup was way more professional and uh, there I, uh, I managed to so no sorry now we are in my second year being under 23 and uh, I'm riding for the Slovenian outfit uh, of Aria Mobil and oh, yes. uh, at, the, at the end of the year I was uh, after doing a good Tour de l'Avenir without decent results, but at least some offensive racing, I was able to become fifth in the world championship under 23 in Copenhagen. And if I remember right, like all the top five guys uh, uh, went to the world tour. It was Arnaud Demar winning, who went to FDG. Oh. Uh, Adrian Petit, I think he went uh, uh, to Kofidis, if I'm right. Mm -hmm. And the third one was Andy Fenn. Um, British guy, I think, to Sky, if I'm right. And I think he retired already by now, but uh, he made the step uh, back then. Fourth was uh, Rudi Gaselik, a German guy, and then became my teammate with me. Yeah. We both went uh, to Katusha to strengthen their yeah, sprint lineup. Okay. And so was the, were the results in the Tour de Eleven year, do you think, what? Uh, maybe got you on the radar for Katusha? Certainly, you know that there are always uh, a few scouts around, but uh, as I said, uh, it was offensive racing, but not yet uh, the big results. But then I think it was, uh, of course, a fifth place in the World Championship is always uh, kind of nice. And uh, mm. uh, it was also a little bit luck, probably. So you need to have a team that is looking for that particular rider. And uh, then on the other hand, I had um, uh, with a, the, 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 a good thing for me was also that uh, it was Hans-Michael Holzer taking over Katusha back then. Uh, so a German manager, a German uh, a bike company. So I'm obviously Austrian, but still uh, at least you, you share the language. And uh, certainly that made also, uh, how can I say, that also played into my hand and then... Uh, made my move uh, happen. Yeah, okay. And maybe, because uh, back then Katusha, 
like even though it had it had a bit of a you know had a Russian background to it, um, but you mentioned the type of rider they were looking for, and oh geez, off the top of my head, 2012, what did they? Was that like uh, Christoph, Luca Paolini? Were they some of your teammates there? It yeah. was uh, it was one of the craziest uh, teams you could sign into because like you mentioned already, Luca Paolini, Alexander Christoph, but. Alexander Kristoff was a small name back then. Like, uh, wow, he didn't he he didn't got uh, renewed his, uh, his contract didn't get renewed in BMC, so he had to uh, get an opportunity elsewhere. It was Katusha, but then you know, you keep on with uh, uh, Joaquin Rodriguez, uh, Danny oh, Moreno, yes. uh, Oscar Freire, three-time world champion. One of my roommates also back then, I remember. Oh. And then uh, the Russian stars like uh, Alexander Kolobnyev and uh, late in the late in the year or late in winter, kind of a last minute signing was uh, Denis Menchov. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, pretty impressive, uh, the lineup we had then. We had then, but, uh, oh yeah. And that made it uh, very special. Yeah, those are massive names. And... Uh... Yeah, a lot of those guys, you know, had a, you know, had some massive, massive wins. What was it like when you stepped into that team, like as a, as a, a young guy? And back then, like um, the youngsters really had to prove themselves straight away. Like, what was it like when you're stepping into that kind of setup? Yeah, it's really odd when you think back now. Being uh, 20 years back then was was really young. Yeah. Now uh, you're already old. You need to win the Tour de France already. But <laughs> by then, uh, cycling apparently changed, uh, or obviously changed so quick uh, throughout uh, these last years. But for me, it was certainly thrilling. I also signed my contract uh, rather late, so everything was happening so quick, and yeah. uh, there was not really a lot of time for adaptation and anything. But uh, the first year anyway, like you are super motivated and uh, super excited. So everything goes well. You're, you're training the extra hour. You are taking everything super serious. You are, you're fresh and motivated. So uh, it was uh, obviously the best thing that could happen to me turning pro. Yeah. Yeah. Was uh, like when you rocked up to your first world tour race with this team, was there anything like what stood out to you? the most like as a as an aero pro well obviously racing against uh, all the the guys you were watching on television before this is still something special um you had a huge yeah. amount of respect for all those guys um, um in a pro peloton and then uh, i remember very well like it, it started very good for me it was the tour of qatar and i think i uh, Adam Hansen was out in front and I won the intermediate sprint uh, in front of Ranshaw uh, oh. in the in the peloton so I was re- because uh, there you were really fighting for the intermediates and everything because every second counted there in Qatar okay. and uh, when we turned into a headwind section I decided to be a a, a good nail and uh, went for some bitens to the car and when I came back handing out uh, the bottles uh, I uh, hit the cat eye, having only one hand on the handlebar, and uh, I caused a severe massive crash, taking down, <laughs> like, I think, uh, three ex-world champions, one of them, Thor Hushov, I remember very well. Oh, so there's still, there still a nice photo of, I think it was uh, from Tim Devale, where I'm lying there under, uh, t- yeah, 
uh, a few thousand euros of uh, carbon on top of me. Uh, that was a bit uh, embarrassing, but uh, as the history of Tov Qatar showed, uh, that was not a, uh, it wasn't only me, so always a, a chaos there. The race always very special, very tense, but uh, certainly uh, I hoped for a different way to start my pro season other than uh, <laughs> make myself notice this. Well, you got okay. the intermediate points, so. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, at, at 20 years old, Marco, in 2012, you must have been that. You must be one of the youngest near pros to sign. Like, there's only one I can think of who was younger, maybe Mahorich. I don't know if he went pro then, or maybe a, bit, a few years older. He was 19, I think. Yeah, maybe Peter Sagan back then was was quite similar. Like they had uh, with Liquid Gas, if I'm right, they had a deal where he was also. Uh, one more year in continental level and then uh, turned up to the world tour in his second year. So I came in basically my third year being under 23. But uh, if I'm, if I remember right, but uh, um, I'm not, I'm not hundred uh, percent sure, but I think it wasn't even possible to go straight from juniors to the world tour. Mm. And uh, now I'm just back from my team camp, as I said before, and two of my teammates, they are teenagers, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's insane. <laughs> I was I was uh, uh, surprised when when I thought about like two months ago they were still on uh, they they had no eleven sprocket you know <laughs> yeah. this is, yeah, this is insane like they are they are riding on an eleven sprocket for uh, two months now this is this is uh, ridiculous but on the other hand uh, very impressive and uh, mm. crazy how cycling changed and uh, since uh, they are kicking our ass it's uh, obviously the way to go. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. So, well, actually, we'll stay on that um, topic. You just got back from having your team camp in Mallorca. Uh, seems like everyone's in, in Mallorca around this time of year in February. What are the focuses of, of the team camp for Bora, um, you know, the last one before we start racing? What are you guys focusing on during that camp? Um, so, obviously... COVID uh, changed uh, the approach to the season for, for all teams a bit because normally uh, it was quite common to have two team camps, one already in December where you are mm. able to create some base miles and then in January you do the fine tuning and more intensive work. But uh, uh, through all these uh, travel restrictions and uh, risks, uh, uh, Timbora Hansgrohe decided to, uh, to make it only uh, one camp and uh, I got to say, like, uh, staying home as well uh, for December and obviously with uh, rather bad weather and uh, snow and cold temperatures, etc. It wasn't always that easy to be uh, to be on top of my training. So I decided to go already on my own hand uh, at the end of December to Mallorca. So I was there basically for a month. So I put in a huge amount of training really on the on the top limit but uh, at the moment seems like it turned out well we we managed to do a few performance tests just to see where where we are at the moment mm. to have a, a status quo of your condition uh, as i already mentioned before there were quite a few new faces uh, also in the rider department so we had to get to used to each other get to know each other and just um, 
uh, do some quality kilometers together and uh, really nothing special like you you have your bikes uh, your race bikes there for your first time you have your tt bikes there for the first time you get mm. all the equipment like uh, lined up and um, ready to race so uh, yeah now i can't wait to uh, start or, or continue with the next races because obviously we already had the first ones with the challenge mallorca oh yeah and yeah now, and now on to the next ones yeah so. you started pretty well in the the challenge mallorca pretty good start yeah yeah well i'm quite happy uh, condition turned out to be quite decent and uh, big results weren't there yet but uh, yeah also i need to get uh, get used uh, uh, to to ride with the new guys and uh, but it worked out well we had a some offensive racing there with the team and uh, was really enjoyable these these first two races or yeah, yeah for me three races actually sorry definitely i'm always interested in to how riders structure their seasons in terms of how they get to form and you always see different approaches to to doing it and it's like yeah right riders are trying to build up towards a goal during the season and then other riders tend to just try and keep a pretty high level at the start of the season and then just try and hang on to it through the lot of the year and it seems to work for some and not for others but do you feel like it's better to like to start off early and even though there are only small races at the start of the year and no one's in peak form or anything but is the, does it feel better to you to get a result early a couple of top tens early on even if they're smaller races I think if uh, whatever whatever way you want to go, it's always a, a little risk because saying that uh, if you already come in top shape to the opening of the season, it's obviously hard to to uh, keep that condition till your your yeah. highlights. Like uh, if you take me, for example, like obviously my highlights are the Cobalt Classics. So uh, they're finishing mid-April more or less. So it's it's quite some time where you need to stay in shape but on the other hand like uh, uh, if you if i would be chasing form right now it's also quite difficult to get back into top shape because you're obviously racing quite a lot you don't have uh, many periods where uh, you're out of competition so you the competition gives you the load you know like a yeah. Paris or something like that they, yes. it can be super hard or mm, also crazy. one year when there's probably no no wind or, or, or good weather, it's easy, you know, and then uh, it's okay. a little bit difficult to, to um, yeah, to, to get it the way you need it. And uh, whatever way, uh, whatever way you decide, it's always a challenge. But certainly I think maybe also in times of this, is, it's maybe good to be in condition a bit early and then to take it a little bit easier. If, if that's an option, because uh, also health-wise, you never know when never know. COVID will hit you and then uh, you are a week out or in quarantine or whatever. So it's it's pretty difficult for, for everyone. And uh, you you see you see both ways work out. So whatever yeah. it is, bike, ride, <laughs> bike riding at the end of the day, no? <laughs> it is just, it is just bike riding. But also part of being like an elite athlete and when people talk about legacies of riders and who's going to be the best rider ever, who is the best rider ever and those sort of things, like 
you know, results are one thing, but staying on the park, you know, being able to race, being healthy, being fit, like not having injuries. I feel like that's such a big part of being an athlete as well that often gets overlooked. You know, there's a lot of riders that have done very well not to get sick or not to get injured. And it's kind of allowed them to get more results because they're on the park more. Um, and like you a while ago, maybe a few years ago, you had a pretty bad knee injury. Is that right, Mark? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, in 2018 at Warsaw, where I had a, an incident in training, like a car hit me and I have a, I had an open fracture of the kneecap. Whoa. And I was uh, basically six months out, more or less. I was a quite hard way back but uh yeah also also this uh, experience also can help you in in, in certain ways and uh it was a big challenge but uh um now problem more or less solved and um quite happy that i'm i'm back to the to the level i was probably more. even level up or or yeah it certainly gives you some benefits yeah, and when you have an injury like that, that takes you out for so long, and it wasn't just six months like off the bike because it took you a while to get going again from what I can remember looking at your results and, and, and watching you. Um, but, like, yeah. does, does, it, does it give you confidence when, say, you have, you know, you get sick or you have a smaller injury or something like that and you've got to take two or three weeks off the bike or something like that when you – when you know you've taken six weeks, six months off longer and then still got back to fitness, mm. does that give you confidence in that way to come back? When, when, whenever I talk to colleagues who had a similar issue due to illness or, or, or injuries uh, being out uh, of cycling or out of professional sport for a while, like uh, I think what helped me a lot is when I came to a certain point and I kind of accepted the situation, like you don't stress yourself, too much and uh, uh you just need to let go you know like you need to to rest and if you if you if you get your mind uh to accept the situation and don't stress too much like it also helps you to to create energy and uh, this energy you can you can uh, use later then because if you are constantly under stress and you're just uh, uh working and fighting to get back as soon as possible what you obviously need to do but uh a week or two doesn't change uh, uh, doesn't change the world in such a situation. So uh, uh, it it can maybe help you to to have uh, a longer career later on if you if you kind of accept it. And uh, what certainly also played a big part in my uh, in my uh, example there was that um, I was more hungry for racing because I appreciated the the privilege. I have, I still have it, uh, to 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 have my passion uh, to do it for a living, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you are if you are aware of that, it also can boost your career. Definitely, yeah, that's awesome. Um, and you know, in the last couple of years, certainly, I reckon you've had some of your best results, at least in the in the classics periods. From from watching you, I remember. In particular, where uh, it was a couple of years ago, I'm pretty sure, a couple of years ago, Roubaix, and I remember there was, um, you just had a great, a great race working for um, 
can't remember who you're working for, but there was key moments where you were first onto the sectors, maybe 2019, 2020, maybe 2020, 2021. And, um, you know, you were back at the front of the race, you know, leading through the, the sectors. When, when was the moment when you came out of the injury rehab a couple of years later, when was the moment where you felt like you were back? Well, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure you're talking about the 2019 season because this was a year where I almost uh, finished uh, all the classics in the top 20. So uh, top 20 is, is, is certainly not a, a result where you are, you're super proud of or you get new contracts on that or whatever. But uh, like you said, if you do the job and you're still top 20, you're still there, means you're in the race, you create the race. And uh, But uh, it was already the... Uh, the 2019 season, so it was my first season back, and uh, the it was the same year where I did the Bay Crits. We were talking before it, oh yeah, and before about it, and uh, I won them straight away. So uh, obviously, like I had a different different approach uh, to to that season because like all summer was kind of uh, free, no 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 bike riding for me. So uh, I was obviously uh, like super motivated in uh, October, November, where, where other guys uh, went into the off season. So I came with a different uh, condition level to the Bay Grids and that uh, played into my favor. And I think this is also what helped me to, to score some results there. But I managed to keep that, uh, that condition um, uh, for the classics, had some, some decent results. Uh, and Harry Roubaix, you were talking about it before. It was Niels Pollitt who eventually finished uh, ah, second. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Chalbert won that year. And I think I came 16, which is still quite okay, still decent. Yeah. And uh, I went on to do the Giro. I went on to do the Tour de France. So I was just uh, <laughs> flying high that year and uh, was a really uh, enjoyable season. Hey legends, I hope you're enjoying the episode with Marco so far. How good is his accent? The Austrian accent, very, very nice, and he's such a good speaker as well. So I hope you're enjoying um, his chat and our discussions about uh, the classics and, and Bora and all that sort of stuff. So it's a great app, and there's plenty more to come on the other side of this. Um, but again, big shout out to our title sponsor Zwift. Make sure you get the seven-day trial. It's in the links. You just Google Zwift, go on the website, and get on it. It is just so fun. And there's some really good events coming up this week. Tour of Utopia is kicked off. Um, you do stage one, group A, and you get 755 experience points. Wow, that is how you get those Oakley eye shades. Level 31, I know, I just keep harping on about it, but I love sunglasses. Anyway, I also love Zwift. So I hope you're enjoying the episode. We'll get back to it. You're like a Terminator, that Roubaix. You just, every moment, you just came back and he's back. There he is. And uh, yeah. that's, how, that's what I remember watching it. But, you know, to focus on the, the classics and the one-day races, which are obviously your suited terrain or that's where you seem to race the best what is it about like what are the demands of riding you know one of the monuments of Roubaix of Flanders like why do they suit you as a rider well um the the characteristics are obviously mm, quite similar for all of them so they are super long and and, and super hard it uh, <laughs> it gives you uh, a, a different approach to the racing so to to, to the racing yeah. like uh, while another uh i would call them a normal stage race or a normal stage in in any other stage race is like 
you have probably a, a huge amount of an easy part and then you have these one or two spikes where you really need to go over your limit while uh, in the classics it can happen that you need to go over your limit like 10 or 15 times and uh, this makes it so special like uh, you need to fight uh, for your result even more and uh, also the the length of the races and the history of the races they're just special and uh, and therefore uh, I have a special approach and a, a special love for those races yeah it, a lot of riders who, who like and put Roubaix as one of their favorites they all seem to say the same thing it's like a mystical sort of love-hate relationship with the races you know and it is it is and and, and also like the, the the fact that Roubaix is the, the last one of the cobbled classics in the spring like uh, obviously when you do Flanders well you you, you are happy you enjoy it but uh, the next morning you're already working on approaching the shelter price and then when you did this you are already focusing on Roubaix but Roubaix you you know already there where when you are uh, the day before the team presentation you know already okay uh, you're you're about to roll out for the last time this spring uh, your, your, your first peak of the year is uh, soon over and uh, yeah and you, it's a it's a special a special way uh how you approach uh, Roubaix and then when uh, you're there in a the race you probably all also have this in your mind that uh, this is your last chance this is your your last uh, outing and uh, then finally uh all the pressure you had uh, during the spring will will fade a bit so mm. I, I caught myself already a couple of times like getting getting uh, super sick after Roubaix where you just think like uh, all the tension uh, which is building and then the body uh, gets the opportunity to, to finally let go and then everything comes out and you're just like oh, done and completely exhausted for a week. Yeah, oh, I'm going to imagine. It sounds like the last interval of any interval set. You know, you go all in. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Do you, um, do you know the roads of Roubaix really well? Like I've heard other riders talk about you know, one of the reasons why they're successful in the race is because they know the road so well and sort of they know what's coming, where to be. You know, you see that fence and you know you're going to turn left, so you need to get, you know, is it, do you have that sort of knowledge for the Roubaix course? Oh, that plays a huge factor. I would never believed it, but I, I, I notice it myself now being uh, now more than 10 years in this business. Also, it also uh, counts for the Flemish races or... or yes. uh, other riders will tell you the same for Liège or Amstel Gold Race. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it helps you a, a, a huge amount. It gives you a lot of benefits if you are familiar with the roads. Um, obviously, you still uh, need to have the firepower, but uh, to be aware of uh, where to invest and where to save just uh, makes a difference at the end of the day because mm-hmm. like, you, you cannot have, uh, uh, you cannot be there for for six and a half hours, you need to um, make your make your peaks and points uh, where to really invest. And obviously, being a rather um, uh, yeah a smaller rider, let's let's say that way. You, I have maybe two or three times where I can go in the red while Van der Poel or Van Art or whoever that is, they can maybe do it five or six times so they have a little bit more room for error yeah but uh, 
Yeah. Mm. Also, when, when we are talking about that, is quite. I need to uh, tell you this uh, small story of uh, Oscar Freire. Um, as I said before, he was my roommate in the classics in 2012 with uh, Katusha. And uh, like I was there for the recon or, or we, we did a recon of Flanders with the team and uh, the sport director back then told me to take some notes and uh, remember the, the key sectors and sections where I believe I need to be in front. And uh, like at the end, uh, you have like a, a full page of points with the <laughs> sectors and sections where, where you want to be up front and you think they can be uh, race deciding. And that's actually true. Like there are so many key sectors in any race. And then I talked about it with Oscar and uh, said, yeah, but how do you approach it? He said, Marco, you do it completely wrong. So what do you mean? Look, for me, for you, there are like 28 sectors that are important. For me, there are two sectors that are important. So huh? explain that to me. So look at just picking a random number now after kilometer 120, you have the chance to, to stop for a pee and get rid of your jacket. And then at kilometer 182, second chance to get your, your fresh bidden and then be race ready. All the other rest, all the other kilometers, you need to be in front anyway because it's carnage. So he also only picked two sectors where he could actually relax a bit, where he could wow. stop for a nature break and uh, get his uh, gels or bars or whatever he needed so he was just uh, like doing it at a complete opposite way and that was quite interesting also <laughs> that gives you an idea how 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 tense these these phrases are yeah yeah absolutely do you um do you go on the showers afterwards you know the concrete showers? to be fair i've never been there mm, yeah it's, it's now probably a, a uh, illusion destroyed but uh, for me it was just like uh, shortest way to the bus and uh, and then get myself yeah. uh, showered and 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 recovered there because like uh yeah it's all obviously mythical and uh, epic or whatever you want to call it but uh, wow I yeah different <laughs> different different uh, problems uh, after i finished Roubaix <laughs> other than getting the right instagram picture I was just about to say, you know, it used to be mythical, but I mean, there's like, you're trying to have a shower and there's 40, you know, cameramen trying to stick cameras yeah. over the thing. I think it's lost a bit of mystique there, you know, the, but, yeah. you know, the photos look cool, I guess. They are good, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. it is cool. The history, the history always remain um, and it is very unique. Uh, but, yeah, it's really cool. And this season, I'm trying to think now, Bora, Jeez, would you get a chance to ride Paraguay for yourself, do you think? Will you be one of the leaders, do you reckon? Mm, I'm, I'm united again with Niels Pollitt, so... Um, oh, that's a good he's combo. A, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good call for that race, obviously, but uh, since we are... Uh, since uh, Peter Sagan uh, left the team, it, 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 it leaves a, quite a big gap, and uh, I hope I could maybe sneak into a position and situation where I might go for my own results. Um, is it Roubaix or um, another classic? Um, mm. I'm, not, I'm not too picky about that, but uh, uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's still what, what, uh, 
kept me in pro cycling for so many years is still being loyal and uh, we will see however it uh, will turn out you need to take it race by race how the situations are how the legs are and then uh, uh, we will see what yeah. uh, they will have for us that is a good uh, way to do it. just from watching your racing marco loyal is is a good word because it seems like you're always happy to be a team player you're almost like a bodyguard that's how I view and I watch you race. You must like being a team player. Yeah, I mean, uh, in Europe, you quite like uh, to explain it or compare it with uh, with football because every everyone understands football very well, and some don't understand cycling uh, as a team sport. But uh, that's certainly the case. And uh, I always said, um, rather to be the the third best sprinter in the team, I be. Uh, one of the best domestics in the team possible. And uh, that also helped me to make it uh, on, uh, what was it? You can say six consecutive occasions. It brought me a Tour de France ticket, mm. with the exception of the year where I was injured. But uh, every other year I was selected. And yeah, uh, yeah I think that uh, proves that um, I, uh, I'm i doing a good job for the team. Um, yeah. But obviously sometimes missing uh, your own result, but uh, that doesn't matter too much to me. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so sick. Hey, you mentioned Tour de France. Like, this is another thing I'm interested about with, with professional cyclists is how they view all the different races and sort of where they, like, rank them in terms of prestige. And do you see the Tour de France as, like, you know, uh, like the most prestigious race for, for you, for a professional? Uh, it's it's really hard to say what uh, I mean. I think I would uh, rather have a monument victory than I uh, would have a, a Tour de France stage win. But uh, probably I would rather have two stage wins than one monument. I don't know. You know, then there's still the World <laughs> yeah. Championship. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, no <laughs> doubt about it. It cycling doesn't get any bigger than than the Tour de France. Yeah. Everyone around the world knows the Tour de France. Uh. uh I also always uh, uh, give this example when you uh, speak to uh, people outside of the cycling bubble. Mm-hmm. They would, if, if they ask you what you're doing for a living and you're saying you're a professional cyclist and then ask you, oh, yeah. uh, oh have you done the Tour de France? And if you say no, they, they think you're not a, a professional cyclist. But if you have done like uh, eight uh, Giro d'Italias and probably one uh, Roubaix, <laughs> they, you're a probably even bigger cyclist than uh, if you have just uh, two participations in the tour. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the tour is big. It is, um, you might be right like that, or at least it's the most known race on the calendar. And uh, that's why it's always a big goal to, to get there. Yeah. I guess it has the biggest profile, but um, I know it's not always viewed that way within professional cyclists, but it's very important for their careers to do it, um, of course. But what about um, nationals? You've been Austrian road dress champ before, haven't you? Yeah, in uh, 2015, and uh, I came second uh, last year. So it's always a big, it's always a big, uh, a big and special race. Probably not too big, but uh, Nationals are nationals. It's a quite yeah. uh, tense race every year. Like obviously, you're fighting for that uh, iconic jersey. What you're uh, gonna wear for entire season, and that makes it certainly special. 
Yeah, yeah. Who who won it last year? I didn't see the race. Uh, uh, it's uh, Patrick Conrad. So he's now my oh. he's now my oh. teammate anyway. Okay. But uh, Bora Hansgrohe has now a big lineup for for this year's championship. <laughs> as we will be five five Austrians, oh, yeah. uh, five guys competing for the for the yeah. jersey. So I hope we can keep it in the team. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully. And moving to to Bora from Bahrain, victorious. Um, it must be nice to be on the specialized. It is. I mean, I need to say that um, also the um, Merida setup was obviously uh, a very good one. Being uh, uh, if you just think about the, all the victories the team created last year, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the specialized is is the Mercedes uh, of yeah. the of the race bike. So I'm really I'm really happy to to finally uh, uh, race with a specialized and uh, yeah, very good. Very good uh, setup we have in terms of material from like all yeah. all the things like uh, specializers doing super good helmets and shoes done with the right one hundred percent glasses and everything. Oh. And, uh, it's, it's oh yeah, it makes you it makes you a, a happy man if you have a, a, a good material <laughs> to work with, obviously. Oh yeah, definitely. But with with the bikes, Mike. Do you notice a difference between um, all the different bikes? Obviously, the bikes these days, they're all so good. But I, I always want to know more about Specialized because it seems like the riders lean towards that bike as, as the holy grail, you know, like you said, the Mercedes. But when you're trying out a new bike, and you, or not trying out a new bike, you've given a new team bike and you're putting it through the paces, is there anything in particular that you notice between all the bikes? Not better or worse, but do you, what do you feel that's different between bikes? No, you uh, being a professional, uh, you you notice the differences uh, right away because I mean, uh, if if someone puts my my saddle two millimeters down, I would notice that also right away, and you notice that uh, a bike is stiffer or quicker or le- uh, or more or less aggressive uh, mm. while cornering the ge- geometry. Like, is the seat post less flexing or more flexing? All all that stuff like. Uh, uh, but obviously you get used to it quite quick but um, yeah. jumping on a specialized certainly gives you the the good feeling of uh, having a absolute weapon uh, oh, yeah. and uh, yeah whatever it is maybe it's a myth but uh, specialized is specialized <laughs> definitely <laughs> absolutely I've got a specialized so I'm a fan um, yeah <laughs> so when you're changing changing teams like it's pretty big. I imagine it must be a, is it a big process? Like, you know, you're swapping from Bahrain to Bora or Katusha to Bora. Like, um, is the difference from, say, moving to Bahrain, Victorious, to Bora, Hans Grower, uh, do they have the same resources or do they use them differently? Like, do some have different team staff in terms of, I don't know, does Bora, does Bora have, like, more chefs and maybe Bahrain didn't have team chefs or... Are there any differences there? My obviously there are there are uh, minor differences uh, through through the whole through the whole thing how how they approach uh, certain things like uh, maybe there are two nutritionists here and only one there while uh, we go with more mechanics here and uh, less Swan is there but at the end uh, uh, all the the system is working whatever team you are on. Um, I'm privileged to 
to be again on a team with a, with obviously a, a good budget and very well uh, mm -hmm. led by Ralph Denk. Like you really feel like he's uh, uh, thinking about uh, everything to make the the rider happy and perform on 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 top level. So mm -hmm. uh, I think there are no huge differences uh, okay. in approach uh, of the teams. Um, but uh, what's certainly the case is like with Boransk, where I immediately felt like coming home, whatever that was, uh, is it uh, the language? Uh, obviously, mostly German-speaking team. I can uh, uh, talk in a mother tongue to the boss. Uh, it, it gives you a, a different uh, base, uh, probably, and mm. uh, quite a few known faces in the in the rider roster. Uh, yeah. It makes you... Uh, going to a comfy place so like uh, uh, being away now for a month made it a lot easier being uh, being there with friends yeah. so uh, hmm. I'm very happy like uh, I'm very happy that my my career turned that way and I'm uh, with Bora Hansbro now yeah absolutely I guess those environments when you go away for racing or big blocks of, of, of training it's less foreign to you because you've got those home fields there uh, from the Austrian and the German. 100%. 100%. <laughs> like cycling is uh, is too hard to uh, yeah, just um, do it as a normal job. Like uh, you yeah. need to have the passion, you need to feel comfy, you need to be happy. And if you are, you can perform on, on a better level and that makes you more competitive, more winning. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, at the end, that's still what matters. Yeah, 100%. But a couple of questions. To fire off at the end, Marco. Um, do you ride on? Do you ever use the Ergo, like ride on Zwift? Uh, well, yeah. Um, um, obviously, like I'm riding my bike because I want to be outdoors and uh, enjoy <laughs> the roads. But uh, yeah. Austrian Austrian winter sometimes uh, doesn't give you any other option if you want to get through a, a period of bad weather, and then it uh, needs to be the turbo trainer, and now uh, with the Bahu kicker it makes you also way more comfy and uh, uh, and doable these tasks because it's certainly difficult and I'm also happy to to help myself uh, get through these uh, uh, two or three hours with Swift so uh, all these little yeah. gadgets made into trading way more or way better but yeah. uh, whenever I can I want to be outdoors obviously. outside definitely yeah. Do you, um, when you put Zwift on, do you, uh, like, are you watching the screen, looking like at a course, or do you have a TV on? How do you usually set it up? No, actually, no, no TV, no TV uh, running while I'm doing uh, Zwift or, or indoor training. Like, I'm also that kind of guy. Uh, also, when I'm outdoors, some people tend or like it to listen to music or whatever. Like, for me, that's yeah. an absolute no go. If I'm on the bike, I, I want to be focused on what i'm doing and then it's it's focusing on me uh all the time like how i feel how the legs are on the breathing on the rhythm so i i like that uh, maybe a certain form of meditation <laughs> definitely oh definitely that's what especially like a long endurance ride like it can be a real way of sort of well thinking isn't it yeah it's it's uh it is a, a special what what's the right word like you you go to 
to to to a to a special or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Into the void, the good one. Back in Austria, do you have a favorite like? A favorite loop in Austrian summer? Is there one where you come back, you have, maybe you haven't been home in a while, and you go, right, I'm doing the classic loop, the favorite loop? Do you have anything like that? Well, there are so many, but obviously, like the area where I grew up, like uh, in south of Austria, we are, we are there at the border to Slovenia and Italy. So, what's always quite special is if you, if you do a proper training and you pass uh, actually three, three countries and you, you can stop for a good cappuccino in Italy. This is certainly a, a very good thing to do. Many, many lakes you can pass uh, everywhere. These spots with uh, uh, fresh uh, water fountains and everything. So uh, uh, Austria as a whole, but uh, uh, Carinthia in, 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 uh, uh, in particular is uh, probably the best, best place to ride a bike, but... Uh, Probably many people will will tell you that home is the best place to ride a bike. So, well, um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Um, all right, and last question, Marco. In the next, well, I guess say while you're at Bora, let's say you finish at Bora, if you could draft or bring anyone to your team, any other rider, who would you like to bring on your team as a teammate? Well. Um, being in a in a similar role of uh, of being like you said a, a bodyguard or whatever you want to call that or just a, a domestic I, I I'm the guy who appreciates uh, also this work and then when you think about Luke Rowe for example like uh, he's doing this uh, perfectly so I think uh, Luke Rowe is uh, a guy you probably hate to race against but you would uh, love to have exactly. him as a team and I think that's that's also how how Luke would probably think about me, so uh, he's definitely better to have him in the in the same jersey. Oh yeah, that's great. I reckon I've seen. I think I've listened to Luke Rowe on his podcast with G, and he might have said the exact same thing about either you or someone else or himself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's. I was actually doing funny you said Luke Rowe because. On Zwift, they've got uh, like an Ineos training camp thing now. They've got all like these workouts and they've got like right. the, Car- the Carapaz, the Bernal, the Kwiatkowski, and then there's the Luke Rowe, all the workouts. They're just tailored to them. And I did Luke okay. Rowe's workout this morning, so it's funny you mentioned him. It was, <laughs> it was pretty hard. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, Marco, that's it. Thank you so much. It was so good cool. to have you on the podcast, mate, someone of your caliber. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to watching you in the classics this year. And hopefully you can get a little bit further up there, maybe snag a top 10 or either way, do a really good job for your team because you're a beast in those races, mate. Looking forward to it. Cheers. It was a pleasure. that's it legends another episode done and dusted huge thank you to marco for coming on the podcast make sure you follow him on instagram he's got a very good profile and post some great uh 
clips and, and pictures and some good captions as well. So he's very active on Insta and a really good uh, cyclist to follow. But I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you really did, please leave a rating on Apple or Spotify. Let's get those, those ratings up and about. It's really good for the podcast and it's great for the growth. And um, yeah, make sure you follow the Instagram account as well. And, and feel free to send me a message on who you want to listen to and, and who you want to hear from and that sort of stuff. Because I can really, there's no limits to who we can't get on this podcast. And I just want to hear who you want to hear from. Um, but a few things coming up in a few weeks' time. We've got Julian Vermont coming up. We've got a special guest from Uno X. We are going to learn about everything to do with the Uno X. Uh, pro cycling team that's the development team the pro conti uh, men's team and the world tour women's team wow we're going to learn everything about them there's some big big episodes coming up and i'm absolutely building a huge episode that i'll explore more in the future Um, but hey that's it thank you so much for listening and i'll see you again soon for julian's episode midweek